Welcome back, everybody, to Value Adds Value. My name is Kyle Krieger, and I'm joined by my guy, Will Give You Law the Third. Will, what's happening today? Oh, man, loving this 85 degree weather in Houston right now. Um, Are you going to do me like that? I just told you it snowed here like a little bit two days ago. I know. It's crazy. But our weather's up and down. I mean, it was 40 degrees the other day, and then today it's like 85 degrees. But hey, I love it. I know. And we are super thrilled um, for our guest uh, yes. today. It is someone who, uh, you know, on a whim, when we first started the podcast, we reached out to interview. We've had her on a couple times. And since then, you know, I'm not saying we're like responsible for her amazing TED Talks and works and, and her new book. But Liz Kleinrock, thanks for taking a little time to talk with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I love the fact that y'all were my first podcast ever. Mm. I don't know it how was, long ago it was. Oh, it probably wasn't that long, but it feels like a long time. Probably, it probably three, three years. Three years? Two or three years, yeah. Two or three for sure. Oh so gosh. it's, um, and I would want to reach out to you just because, you know, I we follow you on Instagram, and obviously, for people um, who don't follow you, we'll have you explain a little bit. But just the one thing I've looked that I look up to you the most is, and it's we were just talking like you set boundaries. It's at least it seems from our perspective, you set boundaries, especially with your social media and with people better than anyone I've ever really come across. So, I I look up to you for a lot of reasons, but especially in that one, the way you are able to set boundaries. So um, to be respectful of that time you have, could you, for our listeners that may not know who you are, give us just a little bit uh, about your background and how you got into the education profession? Sure. Um, so my name is Liz Kleinrock. My pronouns are she and her. I call myself an anti-bias, anti-racist educator in progress, like really trying to emphasize that in progress part, just how this is a never ending journey because there's always so much to learn and there's so much to unlearn too. Uh, and the latter tends to be the harder part. Um, my, my day job, I teach uh, sixth grade currently, um, but outside of school, I also do workshop facilitation. Um, I've been writing quite a bit. I like to joke that I have like three full-time jobs, um, but it's been, it's been quite a journey. I never thought I would be a teacher. I like volunteered uh, with like tutoring programs in college and is the first job I got outside of after graduating. Um, and it, it was just it. I taught in Oakland for two years and then moved to LA to get my master's and taught there up until a year and a half, two years ago, I moved back to DC from California last summer. Um, so I've taught in Oakland and LA and now in DC and here I am. Awesome. Awesome. And like I said, I was, I wasn't sure if it was the Bay area when we had talked <clears throat> to you or if it had been Los Angeles, but yeah, that's, that's, it's crazy to think. So you weren't ever like a person that was looking to get into teaching, like right out the gate. No, like my dad has this really funny list of jobs I said I wanted when I was a teenager, maybe like 12 or 13. Um, but on that list, I think he still has it, are things like concert flautist and like professional soccer player. I wanted to be Mia Hamm, um, photojournalist, marine biologist, a lot of ists, um, but teacher was not one of those things. 
just kind of fell into it and I really liked it. And I just haven't looked back since, but this was definitely not the game plan for quite some time. Will, what were you going to be at 12, 13, 14? What would have been on your list? Oh, like any of those things I just mentioned. Um, I love doing photography. Um, I wanted to be like a National Geographic photojournalist, things like that. Yeah, something in the natural world, I think. I'm trying to think. I think for me at that age, I think that was right when I was realizing I was probably never going to be good enough to be a professional golfer. So I went through a, a landscape architect phase before I got into teaching. Will, how about you? At, at 12, 13, what do you think you were going to be? I wanted to be a veterinarian. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah, I, 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 I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I loved dogs. And then when I found out that veterinarians saw all animals, I niched that one real quick. I, <laughs> I don't do cats. I'm sorry for all the cat listeners. I don't do cats. We we don't have a really good relationship. Um, but I definitely am a dog person. And so that's, that's where I wanted to hang my hat. But then they were like, no, you have to work on cows and sheep and this and that. And I met a vet and he took me around. And I was like, you have a pig in here. You know, why do you have goats in here? You know? Mm-hmm. He's like, it's bigger than dogs. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, no. But yeah, that was my vision. <laughs> Very fair point. Nice. So really recently, Liz, we've really tried to zero in on, you know, the mission that we started, you know, way back five years ago when we were working together was to really help teachers that are new in the profession early in their career. Um, and that's really what we're trying to focus on. For this next question, can you think of, a moment early in your career, whether it was good or bad, that really um, shaped who you are now as a teacher and and really what you learned from that particular experience? Sure, I can think of kind of superficial funny ones and I can also think of like a more like serious real talk Which, one. Whichever, um, whichever you feel. I, I would say that the the serious one had to do with my student teaching experience. Um, I'm still really close with my mentor teacher. He's really amazing. Um, he actually won the Teaching Tolerance Award a couple of years before I did. Um, and so being in his fifth grade class, my first year in LA was a fifth grade classroom in, at 122nd Street in Watts um, in South LA. And everything he did, he just lived his values. There were pieces of evidence of social justice frameworks like all over his classroom. It was embedded into what we read in class and what we wrote about and like different inquiry-based experiments that we did. Um, And I think being able to have him as a model right at the beginning of my teaching career was so incredibly influential. Um, I think of this quote from the Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Jester that so many things are possible just as long as you don't know they're impossible. And I really feel like that Uh, summarize that experience because when I heard teachers and classmates and just you know anyone giving their two cents that elementary school students are too young to talk about race or talk about social justice and engage in dialogue with one another like right off the bat I could say yeah that's not true at all because it's happening in the classroom where I'm teaching every single day and it's beautiful and they're so engaged and they're so brilliant in everything that they share. Um, so that's just not true at all. Um, I can think of the second like aha thing 
is getting too wrapped up in like teacher Pinterest very, very early on in my teaching career. My first year at the elementary school where I was hired as a founding lead teacher, I probably spent most of the days leading up to the first day of school, like literally trying to wallpaper my classroom because all of the walls where I was in a portable and like all four walls were the material that you used for like uh, bulletin boards. So you can tack in like anything all over the place. So I got this like really beautiful bright blue butcher paper and these really cute, um, uh, like the borders, like from Lakeshore and stuff. And I just like went to town and I can tell you within like the first week of school, it just looked like a mess. Mostly because my kids would sit on the carpet and then because they they were first graders or six, they would pick at the wallpaper. They would like pick at it and rip it and tear it. And when there was a tear, they would just keep going. Um, and it just drove me like slowly up the wall. Um, so that was like a really great lesson that aesthetics only get you so far. Um, that was really a necessary way to stress myself out. And it was more important now that I, I uh, was able to become a bit smarter around like classroom decor, making sure that our classroom really reflected my students and like what they were interested in, who they were rather than like the aesthetic that I deemed to be like the most, like, the cutest or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember having that feeling to that expectation that like you would go out and you would spend 200 250 $300 on your classroom every year. And that was even before, like when I started, there wasn't Instagram still wasn't even a thing. So you didn't have that Instagram teacher. That was just the expectation. And I, I totally feel like what you're saying too, that you, you realize soon that like that stuff really doesn't matter as much but on the when you had that that mentor teacher that you had that really influenced you was was anti-bias and anti-racist teaching was that already a thing like I guess a follow-up to that is how long has anti-bias and anti-racist teaching been like I know it's gotten big over the last like handful of years but how long has it actually been around it's been around for quite a bit. I think one of the earliest texts published that I have that specifically uses that language would probably be Julie Olson Edwards, um, oh my goodness, and Louise Derman Sparks, um, books about anti-bias education, um, but their focus is more in early childhood. Um, I could probably grab some literature from Enid Lee also, who I think uses similar language, but I would say that in terms of anti-bias, anti-racist uh, work becoming more mainstreamed in education. I feel like that's only something within the past like two-ish years that I've seen people use that language. Um, I think before folks were using the term social justice a lot more, but I feel like that kind of got co-opted to have some negative connotations. Like by the time you have people walking around in like Lululemon tank tops that say like social justice warrior on them, it's kind of like watered down the meeting a little bit. So I feel like we're always grasping for language that makes, um, that is, you know, responsive and relevant. And I'm sure in not terribly long, we'll see anti-bias and anti-racist go out of fashion too. You know, language evolves, that's okay. Mm -hmm. And the meanings of it, I mean, because, I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of like in today's teaching society, in today's teacher's world, those are words that really wouldn't have come up in the past. I mean, especially in the United States. I mean, I remember growing up, I mean, I went to a, 
I will say a predominantly, if not all black elementary school, uh, all black um, middle school and predominantly black high school. You know, there were no, there was, we had black, Hispanic, and there was one, we had one girl who was Korean. And that was it in our whole school as far as uh, diversity. So those words really would not have come up in those environments. But I think that as, as we've evolved and there's been more integration, those terms have, have kind of made a way for themselves based on what's going on. Yeah. yeah, and I anticipate that pretty soon we'll see language shifting away from like anti-bias, anti-racist towards maybe focusing more on like abolition and, and liberation. I know though that's like kind of moving the needle further for folks who are just like starting to get on board. Um, but I do like the idea of focusing more on what we are for rather than what we're against. So can we just and be pro-humanity kind of right now? Can we just make it, make, make it, let's That'd just be so nice. pro-humanity. You know, I think, cause I think that's what's missing. I mean, in everything that you look at, the, the, the human side, the humanistic as, aspects of it is what has kind of drifted away. You know, I loved it when I went to college that my college was large enough to where you could get lost if you wanted to but it was also small enough to where every professor knew your name. So, you know, I was a junior seeing freshmen, I mean, pre uh, professors that I had in freshman courses who still remembered me, who still remembered the stories that we talked about, who still remembered the things that was going on. And I think that that connection piece is what's, has that lack of connection is what has brought about all of these other things. That lack of, yeah, and, and I guess the follow-up to that then, Liz, with what you're saying, so you said it kind of started as being predominantly called social justice. Now it's anti-bias, anti-racist, and, and you're saying it, it's going to move again. But what do you think are the, maybe I don't even want to say principles, but like at its heart, what what does the work that you do and other people who are doing that work, what is it? what does it ultimately want to achieve? Let's just say specifically for like the students that we teach, because for me, I never anticipated when I left Houston and I moved back near where I live in Minnesota, that last spring, six miles from where I teach would become the epicenter of the world where George Floyd was murdered on the street. So I, I never anticipated that this would be literally right where I live and where I work. So what what are the, you know, cause I, I love what you said too, that the ideas kind of get co-opted and they get watered down. So at its heart, what, do, what does this work hope to give or get out of our students? I think humanizing education and humanizing our students as much as possible. And maybe that sounds like an oversimplification, but I think the way that education has been set up in this country, the way that it has evolved or rather hasn't evolved, I know it's so rooted in, in capitalism. It's so rooted in students coming down to a room, sitting in one seat, the whole like empty vessel we must fill with knowledge framework. Um, 
assuming that the person at the front of the room holds more knowledge, holds more expertise than the students in front of them. Um, and I think that's what we have to get away from when I think about anti-bias and anti-racist teaching or social justice teaching or you know, every schools I think are often afraid to label it anti-racist. They'll say like diversity and equity and inclusion, which are all nice and very important, but also not the same thing as anti-bias and anti-racism. Um, recognizing our students as the individual human beings that they are, um, being able to be responsive to them and their identities and their experiences and focusing on their assets and what they bring to the table instead of just focusing on their deficits or what they lack. Um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with my students this year about the perception of learning loss and standards and how stressed adults are. And all my kids are just like, why are adults so obsessed with this? Like we're, we're struggling, but also like, it's not like we're just sitting around doing nothing or not learning at all. We're just learning different things than we would if we were sitting in a traditional school building. Learning just looks different, which is something I really appreciate about them. Um, but just being able to recognize our students' humanity and recognizing who we are also as educators. Um, I think combating our biases as much as possible and how often interacting with people who are different from you can work to you know, repair and unlearn all of the harmful beliefs that we, we might have acquired throughout our lives. Um, I saw a tweet re uh, recently where somebody was talking about if we know like X number of white citizens of the United States voted for Donald Trump, have similar beliefs, um, thought his policies and everything you said were like A-OK -okay, and recognizing the racial demographics of the teaching profession that yes, there are probably a lot of teachers out there who hold similar biases that like Derek Chauvin held. The only difference is they don't have a firearm that they can use to harm somebody right in front of them. But if teachers were given weapons, how many kids would potentially like be harmed because of failing to comply or any other reason? Um, and so when I th think about the importance of this work, I always like to backwards plan. Like you can't change what's already happened, but if we're thinking about where we wanna go, what can I do right now in this moment to make sure that a student in my classroom does not grow up to harm somebody based on their appearance or any other aspect of their identity? I, I really like that. And especially too, when you, you said the standards all the, all the way back this past summer, Wilkie has been talking about the standards and, and how arbitrary it has been, or, you know, it would have been this year and it has been. Um, and, and that's just so hard. Why do you think now, you know, when there have been years where we know that our kids are, you know, to the standard they're falling for, they've been falling behind, they've been falling behind. Why do you think this year it became such a, a big thing that learning loss became such a, a hot term for people to use? I think because a lot of adults and especially educators grapple with control and having power over our students. Um, the learning loss piece, honestly, like still baffles me. Like we forget that we live in a society full of social constructions. And this is something I've talked a lot about with my students. Like somebody out there decided, okay, like third grade is the year that you learn how to write in cursive. Or like second grade is the year where you learn to, you know, you start to do like base multiplication or you start to like add multi-digit numbers. Somebody comes up with those ideas that at a certain age, we're supposed to be able to do certain things, but they're not grounded in anything really. But the longer 
these beliefs and practices go on, the more that we take them as fact rather than as somebody's opinion. Um, I think though with learning loss, um, we're just so used to learning looking like one particular thing, which is why I've also tried to be really intentional this year in particular um, with differentiating between learning and schooling. Like schooling is where a certain type of learning happens when you're in a particular environment, but learning can happen anywhere and everywhere. And our students are learning so much about themselves, about the world, about the way like all the different systems that we operate in. If anything, our kids have gotten a front row seat to that this year, watching healthcare fall apart, looking at employment, unemployment, looking at um, you know the way that our school systems are designed. And this is the world that the kids are going to be inheriting. Like this is the world that they're gonna grow up and have to live in. Um, so while sure, they might not be sitting in classrooms doing the usual things that they tend to do in school, they're still gaining a lot about how our world is structured and thinking about changes that they want to see. I agree. You know, I think it's interesting that this phrase learning loss because of COVID and everything, but because when I think about the biggest argument in the past was, oh, you're going to hit the summer slide for kids who are out of school, but you know, in May, by the time they come in August, they say, oh, you know, they've lost so much you know, time where they're not learning. But I like the way you put it is that there's a difference between schooling and learning. And learning, I mean, I try to touch, touch on my, with my kids that you're gonna learn something regardless. I mean, if you wanna, I mean, I say, if you're playing a PS4 and you and your friends are playing PS4, if you see your friends grab something and do something that's super cool, the first thing you're gonna do is, hey man, how did you do that? That's learning. But it's getting them to see and transition the fact that when you once you've done it, when you come back to your PS4, guess what? It could be two months later. You may be a little rusty, but you still remember the mechanics of what it's doing. So then that's when the responsibility of the educators come in to say, okay, what do I do to engage this prior learning? And how do I, you know, find out from my kids? How do I find out from them what they what they're missing so that I can help them fill those holes? And I feel like this year, the lessons that I'm trying to teach my students as like, I'm a sixth grade English teacher. I know what the standards are that I'm supposed to teach. I know the concepts I'm supposed to teach my kids. But what I really hope they walk away with this year is they're, them learning about lessons in grace and compassion and self-care. Those are the things that I think are far more important. And that is what I try to model with my students every single day. Like we have sure set assignments and I've noticed how often my kids ask, well, when I'm done with this, like, what do I do next? What do I do next? And to be able to say, you take a break, like you breathe, you did what you're supposed to do. I'm not here to give you work for the sake of doing work. Um, earlier in the year, we've had a lot of conversations around like disrupting grind culture um, and what that looks like in schools. And hopefully even if things like didn't stick hundred percent, being able to give my kids that language and have them start thinking critically about the way that we're asked to engage with work and productivity. I hope those ideas stick with them for far after they leave my class. Yeah. And we, we've been talking about that and talked with a lot of people and it seems like, I think Wilkie kind of dubbed it box checking, like, and I teach eighth grade and I notice that a ton with my kids that they think, 
that it's about box checking. If I can just check these particular boxes and I can do this thing and, and giving them the opportunity to determine their learning and research what they want to research and doing these things. I still have kids that are like, it super duper stresses them out because you haven't given them a list of like, I need to do these, 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 and these. So I, I, last week I said, okay, here's the definition of what it means to learn. And in this project you're doing, I want you to learn about this topic. And, and they seem to be coming around to it, but it's, and maybe 20 years ago when I was in school, I was doing the same thing, but it, maybe it just felt different, but it, it, that worries me a lot. Like you said, that there are kids who are just doing that. So, um, coming back, I, can I ask one more side question, Will, that's not on the, yeah. on the list? Okay. So I've been, I've been, you, you talked about bias earlier and one of the biases that I think I had that I was taught, you know, through my university and such is that the inner cities really need good teachers. Like they need these great teachers to go down here and, and serve those underprivileged kids. And I would never, ever disparage the time I spent, especially in Houston, because it totally shaped me into who I am. But I, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on, you know, because I went to a small town, Wisconsin, white school, white community. I mean, Wisconsin's one of the most segregated states in the country because all the people of color are just like basically in Milwaukee. But I'm asking myself if that narrative is wrong and that maybe my, my experience and my skills would be better served in a predominantly white school where I could share my experience of what it's like to be around people of color with kids who probably don't. So what are your thoughts on that particular question? Well, I tell everyone that anti-bias and anti-racist work is for everyone. Um, everyone needs it. And also it looks really different depending on the community that you're in. I also tend to say that there is no one size fits all for this work um, because anti-bias and anti-racism is gonna look different in a school in downtown Milwaukee versus in you know, a affluent white suburb. Still important, but the makeup of it is gonna look really different because people need to engage in really different ways. Um, I think that the narrative around inner city kids who are like underprivileged, like there's so much, there's so much deficit-based mentality in that language, first and foremost. Um, obviously all kids need good teachers. Um, but I do think that when we start to think about kids being like underprivileged, what is a privilege and what is a right, I think first needs to be differentiated and also that somehow because these kids are underprivileged, the thing that's gonna change it is having like a quote unquote good teacher. When what really needs to change is the systems in which we are living in. Policies and laws that shape education that, that create these disparities and these inequities that we see um, compared to, you know, if you're in a different district or a different city based on how schools are funded, the way that teachers are recruited, the way that teachers are paid, resources that are provided for schools, like there's so much to unpack there. Um, and I often, because I know that I was one of the teachers when I first started, like I grew up in a really affluent area of DC. I went to an independent school. Um, philanthropy was something that was really important. Um, 
but it also was taught from like a very savory mentality that even though I like, I've very much come a long way in my teaching career, but I was absolutely one of those teachers where even though I am not white, still had a white savior complex going into um, schools in Oakland. And I've noticed so many teachers where certain types of language, like these badges of honor, like, oh, like I teach, I teach in an urban area or I teach it at a title one school. Like somehow like that gives you some sort of like street cred or means something about you and means something about the school you teach in and like the students you serve. Um, so there was a lot to unlearn there. Um, but truly, I do think this work is for everyone because in more affluent areas and like affluent white communities, you need to have conversations with kids about examining different types of privileges that they have. And we're not just talking about money because, you know, you can grow up and be white and come from a very like financially disadvantaged background. Um, but to think about if you all, exists in our society and you hold certain types of systemic privileges, what power are you actually willing to give up? How are you willing to step back and make space for other people to ensure that everyone has a voice um, and a place at the table? Um, while in communities of color where I have worked that are um, financially under-resourced, um, we have other conversations about like leveraging our power. Like what does it mean to be an advocate for yourself and for your community? What does it mean to be an accomplice or a co-conspirator to stand alongside with people who are facing similar hardships and maybe who don't look the same as you or don't have the same background as you. Um, so the work certainly looks different, but it's important for everyone. I don't know if I answered your question. I kind of just no, no, that's <laughs> that's that's a a really good way for me to to think about, especially because I've asked probably a half a dozen people on the podcast now. Um, we were talking to a principal in Compton. Um, uh, his name's Amen Ra. And he was saying, he brought a really good perspective. He's like, you know, where you grew up in small town, rural Wisconsin, there's probably a lot of kids that are going through a lot of the things that the kids in Compton are going through. They just don't see themselves similarly. And it is something, because like you said, I wore that as a badge of honor. Like I would brag to people that I taught in inner city Houston and, people where I grew up would say, Oh, you know, bless your heart. You're doing da, 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 da. All those, you know, now kind of patronizing things that you hear, but it's, and, and I've said this too, like, I never really would have understand the experience of people of color, even having taught them until Wilkie and I got really close that I could, I could feel it firsthand that like when he would tell me a story of his upbringing and things like that, that I actually like really could feel it. So I mean, I, there's a part of me that really feels like I should be sharing that experience with kids who look more like me because the area around where I grew up, it's not changing at all. It's the same as yeah, it's always been. And white children need white anti-racist role models. Like that's really important. And, you know, as much as this work, like is for everyone. I think a lot of folks do struggle with the nuance and like balancing multiple truths that do seem to contradict each other. And I think a big one is that like white folks, like you need to step back and like make room for people of color, but also like white folks, you need to like use the power and privilege that you have to like advocate for this work in your communities when maybe your boss, your supervisor, your principal won't listen to black staff members or brown staff members. Um, and white folks really do need to pull what they have in order to make space for this work. Like both of those things are true. 
um, you know, and it's a challenge. And unfortunately, you know, I think there's so much power in like interracial solidarity work, um, being able to like facilitate with people who have very different identities than I do. Um, like it helps with like our biases and making sure that we can speak to multiple identities and histories and perspectives. Um, but if over 80% of the teaching force is made up of white folks and mainly white women who might be unwilling to learn from a person of color, we need loud white folks in the room to be able to speak on this work and to bring people into it. Cause ultimately it's about building capacity. We can't do it by ourselves. Wow. Yeah. And that is a fact. Yeah. Not be done solo on either end. And I think that is, that's where I get the whole human touch back in even my teaching and when I'm working with brand new teachers, um, there's not enough to be said about understanding your students on a human level. Uh, and I don't think a lot of, I mean, I, I, can, I don't think I've, until this year with the whole emergence of social emotional learning being more predominant in, school, in, in, in schools, um, there was really no talk about that humanistic side of of our, of our, of our profession. You know, it was rigor, 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 relevance, rigor and relevance. They forget about the relationship piece, you know, and I love when, you know, um, um, complete blank, uh, Pearson. Rita Pearson. Rita Pearson. I love it when she says it, students don't learn from teachers they don't like. And I modified it slightly and I said, teach students learn from teachers they don't like, they just don't learn what the teachers want, that they want them to learn. They reject what the teacher's that's giving so them and they create their own. And that's where we have to get all teachers in all professions. But I think you're right, it has to, it stems from societal issues. Those, those constructs in society that create the education system and the biases that we deal with every single day. Yeah, actually hearing you say that makes me think about how I, I try to channel a lot of the, my favorite teachers I had growing up, um, some of whom like I'm still in touch with, but I feel like the teacher I am today, I am just as much of a product of the teachers who are really mean, who I really didn't like because I try so hard to not be like them. Um, and those are often the stories that I tell my students and why I will always try to engage with them with patience and compassion and understanding because I remember the moments as a student I was not given that grace um, when I really needed it or appreciated or just needed somebody to ask like hey like are you doing okay or it seems like you're struggling with this let's try to understand why instead of just being reprimanded for not understanding or not completing the assignment the way that the teacher wanted me to I so don't I never want to make a kid feel any of those emotions that I felt in those moments in those classrooms. It's like, if I did, I would, I would cry. I don't know what I would do. And I'm with you because I teach sixth grade math now because I had a horrible sixth grade math teacher. You know, I tell the story that my sixth grade math teacher put me in a corner and said, stay over there. You're not, you're not going to do anything. You're not going to be anything. So we're going to call you Mr. Do Nothing. Those are her actual words. Like Whoa. that stuck in my head so much. Mr. Do Nothing, and so much so to where I adopted it and dropped out because 
of the power of words. And I all, often say, I heard at home the importance of education, making sure you stay in school, doing your best. I heard that from my mom, from my dad. But the circumstances that I was going through at that time, my parents going through a divorce, me wanting to go live with my dad, but can't because my mom has custody. So I have to deal with this back and forth, you know, not seeing my dad as much as I had seen him. And like, there's a lot going on. And as you said, not one person stopped to say, hey, what's going on with you? This is not like you. This is not like anything that I know. I can just sense it. No one said that. Instead, it was sit in the corner, do nothing. And so I taught sixth grade because I said to myself, I will not want another student to go through the sixth grade and have that type of experience. So I over, you know, communicate with my students about everything. I, I celebrate them for, for every single thing. I get involved. I call home. If I see a kid acting out of sorts, hey, I just want to make sure everything's all right at home because I see, you know, Johnny's acting a little strange right now. You know, is this something, oh, oh yeah, you know, this is what happened, boom, boom, boom. Okay, I understand. Now it helps me be able to better deal with him in the classroom and there's not a struggle. You know, but a lot of times, a lot of teachers don't put in that work to, to really, again, that human side of our educational system that is not based on the numbers, not based on anything, but the, that qualitative data that you get every single day. Yeah, the idea that, you know, relationships are at the core of everything that we do. I mean, obviously in education, but outside of it as well. Um, I have often have teachers at, like, as I'll share the types of stories that I talk about and the things that my students share with me. And it's so fascinating whenever teachers ask, you know, how do you get your kids to open up to you? Like my kids like never share anything like that in class. And I'm just like, well, what kind of space are you creating for them? Like, what questions are you asking them? Like, are you just everybody come sit down, we're gonna teach our objective for the day and do the work and that's it and then go like, I open up my class with like ridiculous questions. Like there's always a check-in question that has nothing to do with our lesson. And it's real sweet because I will always survey my students to ask them like how class is going, like what's your favorite part? Um, and it like warms my heart. So many kids are like, oh my God, I look forward to the check-in question like every day. I just want to come in. It's like, what's some random stuff that like my teacher's going to ask me today? Um, and it's just fun. And we'll spend like sometimes up to 10 minutes being in class just talking about that because usually we'll get on some sort of tangent, but like that's where the fun and joy of teaching comes from. It's like all of those small moments and being able to see your kids for who they are, but also like they can see you for who you are as well. I love that. Well, we want to definitely be respectful of your time. So if you could talk a little bit about your book, kind of where it came from and what you hope people will get from it. Sure. So my book is called Start Here, Start Now, a guide to anti-bias and anti-racist work in your school community. I always look to the side because there's the cover printout is here and the title is so long that I think I'm going to forget what my book is called. Um, it's with Heinemann Publishing. It's been in the works for about two years. It comes out like May 25th. Um, it was born actually from an Instagram poll question I asked about two years ago where I just asked teachers, if you want to be doing social justice work in your classroom, but you're not, why are you not? Um, and got 
hundreds of responses from people and from what folks wrote was able to sort through some of the major themes and each of the themes became a chapter in my book. Um, so there's a chapter around if administration isn't supportive or if you need to get parents on board or if you teach like math or science and, you know, how do STEM subjects have to do with anti-bias? Um, so it's all based on what teachers submitted. So hopefully if teachers are in a position where they want to be doing the work and they just feel stuck and need to get started or just need examples of what it could potentially look like or sound like, hopefully this will give all of that information. Like I want there to be things that teachers can use and apply tomorrow if they want to. Excellent. All right, Will, any, uh, any final questions as we wrap up here? And we'll make sure to, um, is, can people pre-order the book yet? Is it available for pre-order or? Um, you can, you can go to Heinemann. You can go to my website. There's a link, it's teachandtransform.org. Um, I asked the folks order it from my publisher, not on Amazon. Like you can get it on Amazon, but I would love to not give Jeff Bezos more money if that's okay. <laughs> Fair, noted. We will, we will buy it either through the publisher or through your website. And that is a totally fair 100%. thing. So, um, all right, Will, any, uh, any last things you want to ask, talk about while we have her here? Um, no, I, I, I think we've kind of covered it. And I know we're getting close to time. And I want to make sure we have enough time for these last two questions. But I do want to thank you. Um, like I say, watching your progression, and we, we, we had it in the question, but we didn't really talk about it, but watching your progression from when we first met you to where you are now, that evolution, it has been consistent and it has been, um, uh, I, I can't think of another adjective to describe, but I, consistent is the one that I, that I stick with because you see the growth and you see the change and and, you know, like I say, even though I, I, I tell people, you know, you have your social media friends, people that you only know through social media that you linked up through and you're not really connected to. But I, I look at what you've done and I and say every time I'm perusing your page, I just I get excited because it's good to have people who are in the fight with you and to know that there's a common, you know, a common group, a common bond of people who are who are here to take up that with you. And, and, and so we salute you for your work and all that you're doing and knowing that it's really just getting started. I mean, because, <laughs> you know, even though you've been doing it a while, it's still so much more work that needs to be done. And so we never thank ends. you for taking that time. <laughs> right, never ends. So- One day um, we'll put ourselves out of business. That's the goal. <laughs> you know that, we said that when we started our nonprofit, we said, you know, the ideal is that we would never have to do this. We, we should not have to offer trainings for teachers that are dealing with relationships. We shouldn't have to offer these because it should come, it, sh it should become the standard. Uh, but until that day, we'll keep our nose to the grindstone and keep pushing. So we thank you, thank yep. you, thank you. So when it's all said and done, well, no, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So let's go here. Think about a billboard that's up, posted up on the, on the highway of life that everybody's seeing when they're driving by. And every teacher, new teacher, old teacher, intermediate teacher, they can see this billboard that you give them with some encouraging words. What would you say to them in their journey? Take your sick days. 
Perfect. <laughs> but I mean it. I just scheduled like four because I have all this accrued time for the end of the year. And we only get paid out like $75 a day. So, and it doesn't roll over. So I'm taking all of it. Take your sick days, take your leave, use it, and don't feel bad about it. You know, I think we are probably not as profound as you probably thought that would be. No, that is, it's surprisingly (laughs) profound. How many people? Self care is so critical. Yeah. And I think we, I've, I mean, I've, I've worked in a lot of professions. I've never felt so bad about taking days off until I became a teacher. I'm made to feel bad, like from from the top all the way down. It's just like, oh, you weren't here yesterday. Oh, your kids were this, this, this. It's like, so when am I supposed to get a day? <laughs> you can say, oh, you get. You're the not. Weekends. You're supposed to be a martyr. <laughs> no, I I, I pass. <laughs> but I love that. Take your sick days because I think even new teachers they they have that same fear of. Are they going to look at me some type of way because I'm taking sick days? You know, and I can't think mm-hmm. about, I can't even imagine certain places that are not as rigorous with unions and everything. I mean, Texas, we're not really, we don't, we have a union, but it's not a unionized state, so to speak. Um, but I could only imagine in places where it's like people are afraid to lose their jobs because if I take too much time off, I'm not going to get, you know, they won't bring me back next year or, yeah. Yeah. They want teachers to wear out. That's what they, they do. They're doing a good job. <laughs> all right. So now the last question. When it's all said and done, the last school bell's rung. There's nothing else. No more reading. No more readings to do. No more books to write. What is it that you want your legacy to be? what would you hope your legacy would be? That's a good question. That's really hard. I hope that the work that I'm doing is hopefully encourages teachers to be fearless. And it's okay if you're a little scared, but you know, to take a risk and to understand that it is more important to take that first step, even if it's little, than to just sit there and do nothing. I hope that people know that there's an access point for everyone and we're all at different places along the spectrum of this work and in our professional careers and our, you know, our personal work as well, just who we are and how we understand each other. Um, but yeah, I hope that my legacy can be to help people be less afraid and like more willing to take a step and do something. Also really vague, but <laughs> that's all I can come so, up with right now. Like, like we said, um, it's it's been such a joy to be able to watch you and to learn from you. And thank you so much, Liz, for carving out a little bit of time for us to come on the podcast again. Yeah, well, it certainly will not be the last. Thank you so much for having we're me. We're definitely going to have you back after we do the we get the book. So that yeah. okay, that's deal done. Definitely. But that's that mentoring experience. And that's what podcasts, and that's what we hope our podcasts become for people, is an opportunity to to almost like a masterclass situation. Because uh, there are teachers out there who, who are rock starring it. 
uh, who understand what it takes to do what we do. But nobody knows who they are. Nobody's heard their voice. No one's, no one's, you know, there's not a camera in every teacher's room capturing all these moments and, and putting them in a file. And you may have never experienced it, and then you may listen to it on a podcast, and then all of a sudden you experience it, and it's like, oh, I remember them saying, okay, this is how you, okay, got it. And even though it may be like, no, nah, I can't do that, but it gives me an idea. It sparks an idea in my mind of what I can do. 